It's This Week in the CLE, the analysis of the latest Northeast Ohio news by the team that brings it to you, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, with co-host Laura Johnston, and we will start with our totally subjective ranking of the five biggest stories of the past week. Number five, in a shocking bit of strategy, First Energy Solutions has asked the Ohio Supreme Court to block a proposed statewide referendum on a bailout of its aging nuclear plants. The argument, the bailout, which costs ratepayers 85 cents a month, is a tax. Never when First Energy Solutions was asking the legislature and the governor for the bailout did it describe it as a tax, probably because no one likes a tax. Number four, U.S. Attorney Justin Herdman held a press conference to warn white nationalists that he and his fellow law enforcement leaders in Northeast Ohio will not hesitate to arrest and prosecute them when they break the law. Their dramatic statement, rare for a U.S. attorney during the presidency of Donald Trump, followed three high-profile federal cases involving extremists in Youngstown and Toledo. Number three, Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost has doubled down in his bid to block counties like Cuyahoga from suing pharmaceutical companies to recover all the money they've spent coping with the opioid crisis. He asked an appellate court to allow only the Attorney General to handle such suits, despite criticism by the governor, local leaders, and others that it's a self-serving attack on home rule powers. Number two, Cleveland.com published a photo making the rounds on social media of a convicted felon and suspected gang member standing at the top of Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's driveway in the central neighborhood. He had a gun in his pocket and his hands filled with cash, all in view of a police car. Jackson declined to comment on the presence of an armed felon at his house. And number one, a veteran city prosecutor declined to charge Mayor Frank Jackson's grandson after a woman accused him of choking her, beating her, and whacking her with a metal hitch in front of several witnesses. City prosecutors ultimately answered to Jackson, and they did not turn the case over to county prosecutors, as is usual. But a county grand jury on Wednesday handed up an indictment of the grandson, whose name is Frank Q. Jackson. That Jackson is 22. He's been in the news because a car registered to him was seen speeding away from a shooting that killed a 30-year-old man. So, not a banner week for the mayor, Laura. Are you surprised that we did not hear from him on either of these cases? Not really. (laughs) He's been mayor for 14 years, so we know what to expect. He's not exactly big on public statements in general, and when it comes to his family, he definitely stays quiet. Still, since this involves his prosecutor's office, you might expect a city response. Yeah, indeed. Well, this is the second week for you as co-host of this podcast, and we keep altering the format each week as we try to come up with one that fits best. For the past few weeks, we've restricted these segments to just one or two reporters or editors to go deeper into the topics they have reported. What are you hoping to get at today? I'm really looking forward to talking with Jane Cahoon. She's our politics editor for those rare few who don't know. And I'd like to talk to her about a plan to take a new look at 1,500 sexual assaults that were reported against doctors in Ohio over the years. After the revelations about the Ohio State University doctor who got away with it for so long, I think it's great that these will get another look, but I wonder how hard it will be to prosecute such old cases. I'd also want to say that I like delving a little deeper into stories on this podcast now that we've refined it. I like hearing how our reporters got stories and what they think is going to happen next. I can't come up with a better segue than that, so let's get started. Crime reporter Adam Faris is here. He reported both of the Frank Jackson stories. You're doing a hell of a job, Adam. Another busy week? Yep, another busy week. So let's talk about the grandson, Frank Q. The details you reported on that beating were just shocking. Yeah, so the 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 details were basically he was accused of beating an 18-year-old woman over the course of 
several i mean you know 10 15 minutes uh once at a gas station once on the drive to an apartment building and then once they got there he dragged her out of the car by her hair the truck excuse me out of the truck by her hair um punched her repeatedly grabbed a metal truck hitch and hit her repeatedly in the knee and then and then at some point police showed up and and he fled right that's the other part of it yeah he ran off first uh and then he came back uh in a truck that was registered to him and uh police officer you know stepped in all the witnesses at the scene said that's him that's the guy who did it police officer steps in front of the truck says pull over he hightails it out of there um and uh then and his mother Mom was, comes yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Accusations of his mother uh, driving around the scene while the victim and witnesses were giving statements to police. What is that? Was that was that intimidation or something? Why would the mother be doing that? The victim reported that she felt like she was intimidated because of that. At one point, after uh, Frank Q showed up in the truck, she said, "I'm not cooperating anymore." Uh, and then when the mom showed up, it was another another level of fear. So let me get the process straight, because this was the public housing police department, I believe. But they're supposed to take a report and give it to the city prosecutors, and then is what's supposed to happen. So the city prosecutor, in a typical case, they take a look at it. They review it for um, you know, either misdemeanor or felony charges. Uh, felonies, they kick it over to the, co- the county prosecutors, and they pretty much handle that from that point on. Um, uh, there's also, I believe, some processes for domestic violence cases where, um, or, or violence cases where the victim doesn't cooperate. But there are other, you know, there's witness statements, victim statements, and police officers' testimony uh, that could be used in a case. Uh, in, in this particular case, the city prosecutor never referred it to the county, pro- or well, it never referred it to the county prosecutor, uh, and just issued uh, no charges. You know, Jackson said yesterday to some television reporters he was unaware of this case, and I've known him a long time, and he's not really the kind of guy that would order his prosecutors not to charge his grandson. You know, one, he doesn't do that kind of thing, too. He's smart enough to know it's going to blow up like this is blowing up. But somebody made that call, whether it's the frontline prosecutor, the city prosecutor, his law director, somebody made the call. Where did you where did you see this thing kind of come to an end? Was it the frontline prosecutor that signed papers saying no no case? Yeah, the frontline prosecutor did sign the papers saying uh, that they weren't issuing any any charges. But what we would like to know, what we've repeatedly asked, is did this prosecutor consult a supervisor, law director, or anybody else in regards to any sort of conflict of interest or farming the case out or? Uh, any other policy we haven't heard anything back well and the reason that's that's important is is everything that you've reported shows that this was truly unusual that in in other cases like this with the strangulation and all all of those other things it's pretty automatic that this gets referred not just charged as a misdemeanor but referred to the county for felony prosecution and that didn't happen you would think that jackson even while saying i knew nothing of this case would see that the system broke down completely here, happening to show favoritism to his grandson, and would want those answers. Do you get any sense that anybody in the city administration is trying to get to the bottom of how something so wrong could have occurred? No. Um, we haven't heard anything asked, you know, 
pretty detailed questions about what happens next, if there's going to be any sort of review of this case and what happened. It's just been complete radio silence from City Hall. From City Hall, but the county prosecutors did take this to a grand jury this week, right? And they indicted Frank Q. Jackson on felony counts of assaults and fleeing from officers. So what's the next step there then? Um, I mean, he's got to face criminal charges. Okay. There are second degree ones, a se- uh, worse, you know, worse charges, a second degree felony. That's two to eight years in prison if convicted. Um, uh, fel- third degree felony uh, abduction. Uh, they took a look at it um, as some of this other stuff was happening involving a, a fatal shooting. Um, it came to light. The prosecutors found out and. They immediately took it to, I mean, pretty much, not, I, I don't know how quickly it happened, but it happened fairly quickly. You know, the police report that you obtained was very detailed. CMHA police did not shirk their duty in putting this together. They clearly thought something wrong had happened here. When they were told by the city prosecutor they weren't filing it, I'm a little bit surprised they accepted that and didn't take it to the county themselves. Is there any indication that CMHA looks at Jackson's family as off limits? Well, they've charged him two other times, uh, arrested him and charged him two other times, one for gun charges and one for, uh, I think it was uh, ended up being an aggravated menacing misdemeanor conviction, um, which he was driving a truck where people were shooting paintballs uh, out of the truck at other cars. Um, so I don't think, I mean, I, it seems like looking at all three of those cases, they do their investigation, they refer to the prosecutors as they're supposed to. And and then when the city prosecutor yeah, said no, they just let go. Yeah, that's out of their hands. All right, the other Frank Jackson story is really no less disturbing, in some ways more so. That photo you obtained of a gang guy on the mayor's driveway with a gun and cash, all in plain view of the cop who was supposed to be protecting the property, is unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, Across this nation, name one other city where you have a felon with a gun photographed at the mayor's house. Um, it, it just this this must have stunned you when you first came across it. Yeah, um, I think it shocked a lot of people. Uh, got a, uh, quite a bit of traction on social media, and the you know the photo you can look at it on Cleveland.com. Uh, suspected gang member with what appears to be a pretty large gun in his pocket with a fistful of cash in the mayor's driveway well and the unmistakable message is if this guy's into bad stuff i'm protected by the mayor and police because who else would stand i mean he's a convicted felon with a gun right there he could be charged and it's you can't mistake it there's a it's a big clip so as that photo circulates that's the message, right? I mean, that I'm protected. I have. I'm at the mayor's house, and look at me. I'm nobody's touching me. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, there's a police car in view of the camera right behind him. A um, lot of uh, reporting that we did about, um, you know, some of the comings and goings at the mayor's house. There's quite a few suspected gang members that go in and out of that house uh, on a pretty regular basis. So it looks like this is a frame from an Instagram story. Mm-hmm. That would mean that someone following this guy's account took a screen grab of it within 24 hours, correct? Uh, yeah, I, I would think so. I, I mean, it, it got around pretty pretty quickly. And then they published, they, they sent it to us? They put it on our Facebook page? Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if I can really talk about that. Okay. Yeah, well, it, it showed up in the comments on one of our platforms. I don't remember which one for a little while. I mean, but it was this was circulating. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure there were lots of people who were interested in it. You know, the mayor lives in the central neighborhood, which is a haven of gang and gun violence. You've written no shortage of stories about bad things that happen there. Um, so even though he's not talking, you, you could probably guess that he's opened up his house a little bit as a safe haven um, you know, his children, his grandchildren live there. Um, but this photo raises kind of big questions about how much control uh, he's having. And people, I think, are probably questioning, how do you run a city if you can't keep control of your house? Um, you know, and I wonder how much this is eating away at him. Here's a guy who spent, you know, 14 years in office trying and failing to stem gun violence. And now you can see his own family kind of getting swallowed up by it. It feels like such a Shakespearean tragedy, but he won't talk to you. No, uh, or anybody. I think the only time he talked to anybody about this was uh, some TV reporters cornered him at a police uh, police uh, supervisor promotion ceremony yesterday. And he basically said it's and, none of your business. Yeah, which, it's not city business. It's not public record. My thoughts aren't public record, so... Yeah, but you can't. You're the mayor, and if there's an armed felon on your driveway, that is city business. Everybody who voted for you deserves to have an answer on that. You also wrote about the latest installment at the county jail, which is one of our favorite topics on this podcast. Installment 643? (laughs) Yeah, 45. I think this is the first time we've written about an inmate that escaped, though. At least yeah, recently. Yeah, this is a first escape from the jail since all of this stuff has been going on. Uh, so kind of another new level. When you, Whenever we think like, okay, this is we've hit all every possible <laughs> topic uh, that could go wrong in a jail, something else like something new pops up. This was a straight escape. Um, we don't know all the details yet. The county has been... Um, they have not said anything, only confirming that there was an escape. Um, well, what are the rules following an escape? Do they have to notify the public? And is there, because this guy is dangerous, I mean, who is he? What What did he do? So this guy's name is Ferdinand uh, Torres Vargas. Uh, most of his crimes, especially recently, or accusations are involving attacking his ex-girlfriend or girlfriend at the time, depending on when it happened. The, the accusations are, are pretty violent. Uh, once she was pregnant, uh, choked and and punched her, and uh, this most recent time they had they'd been broken up for a while, uh, and he attacked her while she was holding their four month old baby. So you think she's in danger? So what? What's there's the ten- a deputy that's assigned to her to protect. Her. Yeah, but what's are there any rules for the county on warning the public? Yeah, Ohio law dictates that the sheriff of a, you know the sheriff of any county in Ohio after they realize that there's an escape that they must immediately notify the Ohio State Highway Patrol, the police department in the city where the jail is, um, the media, and we're unclear if any of those notifications have been made. We were certainly not notified. It's also punishable by a misdemeanor misdemeanor charge. It's kind of crazy. I think of like a jail escape as like running through the woods or something. But like this is downtown Cleveland. Downtown like, Cleveland. And they wear those orange, um, like, I don't know, shirts Jumpsuit. and pants. Jumpsuits, right? So, but jail officials are not telling you how he escaped. And we don't know how he slipped out, correct? Do they correct. know? Um, <laughs> I, I think there's some, there's some indication that they do know. 
uh, a little bit. Um, I do not believe that he was wearing the orange jumpsuit at the time. Didn't somebody like pose as a nurse and get in trouble for that? Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I don't think this was like this, but what okay. we have to see. That was, yeah, you're right. A bunch of other inmates have been leaving the jail, but with these, the county knows exactly where they are. It's all part of an effort to reduce the crowding and ultimately all the lockdowns they have over there. Yeah, so they they are sending inmates to other um, other county jails. Uh, Dave Yost, the uh, attorney general, issued an opinion not about Cuyahoga County, but uh, I think Guernsey County uh, a few months ago saying this is the law. The law requires the sheriff to find housing for inmates if your jail is overcrowded. Uh, They've started to do that. I think as of last week, there were like 36 inmates that they sent to other county jails. Um, And they're also working with the judges, the prosecutor, and the public defender to try to um, cut loose some inmates who have low-level crimes, nonviolent crimes with low bonds that they can... um, cut loose put on gps monitoring that kind of stuff didn't the county just close a jail in euclid why would it do that if now it's got to farm out its inmates uh well so i don't believe it's actually closed yet it's going to close uh possibly but that jail was operating uh well above its recommended capacity for a while once that was the county became aware of that they started the process of of shutting that jail down well it, the, the same guard staff that worked at that jail works downtown and so if they're understaffed at their main jail that goes to you think that they're also understaffed at euclid so closing that at least allowed them to fortify the main jail yeah i think is nine inmates that were or nine corrections officers that work at the um the euclid jail so they are being moved back downtown we're expecting news after this podcast is published on how much the county has done to reduce lockdowns, so be sure to check cleveland.com for an update. Adam, a pleasure as always. Thanks. Sure, we'll see you again soon. Yeah. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome politics editor Jane Cahoon to the podcast. Jane, I've got so many questions about the stories you've been handling, as usual. I'm here with the answers. So let's start with the presidential race. For a year, it feels like I've been hearing Ohio isn't a bellwether anymore. Ohio doesn't matter. Ohio is Trump country. But now the Democrats are coming? Uh, Yes, they are. They have chosen Ohio as the site of the next, um, well, not, uh, not the next, but the October uh, presidential primary debate. We don't know what city yet, um, but we know it's October 15th. You know, we all know how unreliable polling is, right? But a Quinnipiac poll a few weeks ago kind of says Ohio might matter because it put Biden way out ahead of Trump, and these aren't unknown people. I mean, people in Ohio are very familiar with those two candidates, which makes it sound like Democrats are now clued into the value of Ohio. Or maybe they've been reading the flyover, Jane, our new newsletter, <laughs> looking at the issues in states like Ohio, which we believe will decide this election. Well, I do think the Democrats um, think that a lot of issues are going to resonate um, in Ohio with people who voted uh, for Trump, who might now want to vote for Democrats. But uh, but yes, we hope they are tuned into the flyover, which we're... Um, excited about we it's, it's free a, it's free sign up at cleveland.com slash newsletters thank you for it's that free. Plug. it's free it's free um it, it's a weekday uh, morning newsletter that our politics editor seth richardson puts together 
And um, what, what we're trying to do here is really bring front and center the issues that are important to people in the so-called flyover states because they play such a crucial role in the 2020 election. So this newsletter brings you issues and news that you need to know every day for free. And on the debate, I mean, the, the issues that are relevant in Ohio late this week, it's been about vaping. Um, you know, in other weeks, it's opioids or manufacturing, gerrymandering. gerrymandering right. Yes. I mean, th- those are relevant across these these other states. So it, it really isn't a surprise that they would come to Ohio. Is there speculation or informed speculation on which city might land the debate? I mean, are we thinking Cleveland is a good place to go because it's a Democratic stronghold? Or are we thinking Cincinnati because of its more southern face? I don't really have intelligence on what the thinking is, but I would think Columbus might be a good place because demographically it's changed so much. Um, and, you know, they, that area has presented Democrats with a lot of opportunities. Or, Although Cincinnati, I don't know. Or do they go to Youngstown to hammer home the idea that the Trump economy has wiped out that auto plant? Yeah, that's, that's an intriguing idea. Because that, as I said, that's where they think some of these issues are going to resonate. Maybe they'll call us for some advice. Maybe. (laughs) Hope they're listening. Regardless, whatever Ohio means to the national debate, we know now fewer people in Ohio will be able to cast ballots. So Jane, you candled a couple of big developments on the state's move to purge its voter rolls. And what's the compromise that they've come up with for, um, for voters on Election Day? Well, there was still part of that case that went to the Supreme Court that was unsettled about the way they notified voters who were going to be purged. And uh, they came up with a settlement that um, says uh, these people can vote provisionally with a provisional ballot um, up until 2022. So provisional ballots, that's what you get when you show up at the polls and they have no record of you or or you're at the you know wrong voting place or something. Do those ballots always get counted? How does it work? No, they they don't. Um, they're set aside. Uh, it, you can vote at the polls. Uh, then they set the ballots aside, and later on, they look at them to determine whether the voters are eligible voters, and and each board of elections determines whether they should be counted. You said until twenty twenty two. So in the meantime, they've got three years. Do they, if they vote provisionally, are they now back on the rolls, or do they have to go register again? Um, Do we know? The, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and if their votes aren't counted, I then mean, they don't. We don't know. My that advice voted. is anybody who thinks they're targeted ought to check their registration and make sure if they're targeted for purge that they re-register. Okay. So even though there was a compromise with the the purging, the Democrats were in court anyway, fighting to block a statewide purge that's going to happen on Friday. What happened? Well, the purge is going to go forward. The The Democrats went to federal court in, in a last attempt to stop this, and the judge pretty much slapped them down, um, saying that you, ha- you haven't provided any evidence. He, he said, you, you just haven't provided the facts. You've cited some media reports and, and other reports from other organizations, but, but you didn't prove your case, and you might not have a strong likelihood of eventually proving your case. Yeah, Frank LaRose, unlike his predecessor, seems to have tried to reach out to the Democrats, work with the Democrats, made the compromise on the provisional ballots. So it seemed almost as if this was an overreach by the Democrats, once again, to stop the purge. The purge was clearly 
going mm-hmm. to go through. The U.S. Supreme Court ruling last year pretty much made it sound like you can. Right. And, and, and there were errors that were uncovered and acknowledged by Frank LaRose. But, you know, the judge said uh, that the secretary has, cre- has corrected those. And um, just because there was a past problem, it doesn't mean there's a current problem. All right, we've got so much more to talk with you, Jane. (laughs) My favorite is how First Energy Solutions is now saying the money I have to pay with my bill to bail out their nuclear plants is a tax increase. In all those commercials (laughs) we saw back when the legislature was debating the nuclear bailout, I don't believe I once heard this thing being described as a tax. Do the leaders of the House and the Senate agree that they passed the tax increase for Ohio? I'm so glad you said this was one of your favorites because it's my absolute favorite story of the week. Um, and gosh, no, Chris, we <laughs> didn't hear anybody saying you lawmakers need to pass this tax. This tax to- is going to be so good for Ohio. <laughs> no, and and what's- wasn't it the opposite? Weren't they saying this is going to reduce I my think bill? So. They're say- well, and and they're still saying that because the the. The um, the end result of this is that because they gutted the renewable energy standards and and there were certain surcharges associated with that, so they wiped those out. So this so called tax um, is is not going to raise people's costs. Um, however, it's I just find this so fascinating because here you have you know the republicans who pride themselves on cutting taxes who helped first energy push through um this bailout now being labeled as tax creators and um and then you've got the people on the other side who um when they were opposing this were like this is nothing but a a bailout tax you know and now they've they're in a position of saying well we didn't mean technically it was a tax, you know, mm-hmm. so you've got this fight. But the, the lawsuit that the um, that First Energy Solutions filed um, really is adamant like this is unquestionably a tax because it meets all these requirements. It's it's uh, for a certain time period. They're routing the money through the Treasury and and um, but. You I mean, know. they're just looking for an argument so that it can't go <laughs> to a referendum, right? I mean, it's not even on the bailout yet, but this fight over a maybe a referendum is vigorous. We talked last week about that outrageous anti-China ad to stop people from signing petitions for the referendum. Um, now they're calling it a tax, which Republicans are going to hate. And is there any polling that shows what happens if this does get to the ballot? Well, um, the... Uh both sides have money, so I'm sure they're doing their own internal polling. They haven't shared any of that with us, or they I, I don't know if they have. They spend all the money yet, on the tax, and then we won't have to pay it. <laughs> but they must—I mean, they must be seeing signs that if this gets to the ballot, that that will voters will approve it because there are—I've never seen anything like this. They're working feverishly yes. to stop us from even getting the vote on it. Right, right. So you got to believe there's something in there. Um, Although I'm, I'm sure that they hope with all the ads that they're going to put out, you know, uh, calling it something else that that voters will will go their way. All right. There was uh, good news this week for the people who do want it on the ballot after the first version of their wording was rejected for not following the r- rules. The latest iteration of the ballot question finally passed muster. Uh, yes, the um, 
the Ohio Attorney General signed off on on the language being a fair representation of what what the issue is. So they got the go ahead to collect these signatures, but they only have until October 21st to collect like 266,000 signatures and they have to collect them from four, at least 44 counties. So it, it's kind of a high bar. So we'll we'll have to see if they but make if that. But China puts all its money into it, <laughs> it should get the signatures. Well, yes. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. So here's a story I've been waiting to talk about. We got word this week, Jane, that the state medical board will take a new look at the 1,500 sexual assaults reported over the years against doctors, all because the state dropped the ball with an Ohio State University doctor who has since died, who was accused over two decades of repeated sexual abuse. So what's the story? Well, uh, at Governor Mike DeWine's request, the state medical board is going through about 1,500 cases that date back decades. Um, these would be cases where there was an allegation made, but, but the case got closed and no further action was taken. Um, the governor um, says he shudders to think there could be another Richard Strauss out there, but he wants to make sure there isn't. Um, and so they're, they're just ha- going to have to painstakingly go back through all these old cases. So we had a kind of similar situation in Cleveland um, with untested rape case. Rip- rape kits. Suddenly, detectives and prosecutors were identifying rape suspects in very old cases, racing against the clock to charge them before statutes of limitations expired. Do they have the same challenge here? Um, Yeah, it's going to be challenging. I mean, you could, I I believe the statute of limitations for rape is 25 years. So they're going back at least 25 years. Um, And, and, um, you know, people could be dead or, yeah, you know. More, I, the more difficult challenge they had with the rape kits was prosecuting an old case because you're dealing with, with victims from so long ago and, and memories. I mean, the DNA was a slam dunk, but it still right. presented challenges. In this case, it, they probably don't have rape kits because right. the cursory looks. I mean, it... it I mean, and they could refer it to law enforcement, but it also could be maybe they'll uncover some cases that just warrant discipline or or something like that. But um, I think what the governor's after here is um, a culture change. Just let's report these things. Let's treat them with seriousness and urgency. And he just wants to make sure that that culture exists uh, with that board and the other state boards. Yeah, this could point out that that they repeatedly drop the ball. And so there could be, like you said, a new culture of how they approach um, sex. Right. In this case, they, they did um, discover that a report was made on Strauss in 1996 saying he had habitually, um, you know, abused young men during exams. And um, for whatever reason, that report went into a black hole. So that's, that was just something that, they don't ever want to happen again. Yeah, a lot of people dropped the ball in that case. One more for you, Jane. For the first time in seven years, people enrolled in Obamacare will see price decrease, price decreases. Why is that? Uh, yeah, people are going to see a, a price decrease next year of about 7.7%. Um, why is it? I, I'm not exactly sure. It could be um, the market just stabilizing and, you know, when when uninsured people first had access to this comprehensive coverage, you know, a lot of them took advantage of it. And that could have, you know, driven prices 
up and um, still that's pretty incredible i mean when was the last time you ever heard of healthcare <laughs> costs decreasing usually we're talking double digit increases right and and the the prices have gone up this is the first time right they're going down uh, i mean i'm sure people will take it <laughs> right so thanks for joining us jane you have the most interesting job in the newsroom and i'm sure we will be talking to you next week well thanks it's a pleasure and um I, I'm lucky to work with a great staff of reporters, so I'm going to give them a little shout out, too. Thanks. Next, we'll talk with federal court reporter Eric Heisig on the continuing saga of our stubborn attorney general, Dave Yost. Eric Heisig is here to talk about a set of very different stories on his beat, the federal courts. You having a good time, Eric? Oh, just the best. Let's talk about wayward Dave Yost, our attorney general. We talked last week about his zeal for stopping cities or counties from suing pharmaceutical companies over the opioid crisis. To review, counties like Cuyahoga spent millions coping with the crisis on autopsies, addiction, and foster care resulting from addiction. They have sued the drug makers to get that money back. Ohio, as a state, has also sued, and Dave Yost believes that only he, the attorney general, has the right to represent any Ohio residents in this. He wants all that money to come to the state. So after we talked last week, Eric, people came out of the woodwork to blast away at Yost. Who were they and what's their point? I guess you're going to have to narrow down which measure you're talking about when you're talking about blasting away at Dave Yost. We're talking about two concrete actions, both of which ended up um, garnering some controversy in certain corners. But a lot of the criticism has come from local leaders, uh, Summit County, Cuyahoga County, uh, and the governor himself. It's gone right to the top. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine has come out and criticized uh, Yost's efforts to try to essentially wrest control of these opioid lawsuits from these local cities and counties. So the governor felt so strongly that he called you from his car, right? He hasn't been very shy about his uh, displeasure. That's twice in a week he's actually talked about that. And, and, and as I said, we're talking about two measures. One is about a proposed um, a proposed law or measure that would go in front of the legislature that has not been introduced yet that would essentially give Dave Yost control of these opioid lawsuits. DeWine has come out against that. And then this week or on Friday, we ended up I ended up writing a story about um, basically a filing he did in the Sixth Circuit of the appeals court trying to essentially stop the opioid trials for Cuyahoga and Summit County, saying basically, I'm the only one that can represent all people in the state of Ohio. When he's also the only one that feels that way. I mean, you know, normally when you're surrounded by intelligent people who say, hey, I think you're wrong on this. You know, reasonable people sit back and think, maybe I'm wrong on this. But he's doubling down. He's taking this to the mat with that filing he made. For people in Ohio, yes. We're talking because, again, we talked about criticism from Mike DeWine. We talked about from Armin Budish. We talked about Eileen Shapiro. Some, uh, Dan Horrigan. Yeah. Right. All these people have come out against it. That said, this is really part of a larger fight that is going on in this large opioid litigation I've been covering for the last couple of years. Uh, the state attorneys general are really trying to represent people in their states. And it's not just Yos. It's you know dozens of attorneys general from across the country that really want control of these things. None of them has have really taken as overt of an action uh, as Dave Yost has, which why which is why a lot of this criticism is coming from inside the state. So you wrote about another Republic official taking a strong policy stand. Justin Herdman, the U.S. attorney for the Cleveland region, went after a spate of white nationalist extremists. Normally, this might not seem so unusual, but we are talking about the age of Donald Trump here. 
we're talking about a president who said after a large hate rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, two years ago, in which, you know, we can claim another Ohio connection, a man from outside Toledo ended up ramming his car into a crowd of people and killed somebody. Uh, he said there were basically people on both sides that were to blame. That is that is the rhetoric the president has put forward. So as a somebody who was appointed by Trump to basically go out there after a couple of weeks where there were a lot of cases involving extremists, uh, white supremacy, what have you, to say we're not going to stand for this and we will find you was kind of a, a shocking thing. You know, Herdman's predecessor, Steve Duttelbach, we would not have been surprised by that kind of statement from him because he kind of made his legacy going after discriminatory acts and hate crimes. Uh, but, you know, his president was, was Obama. Uh, you just have not seen U.S. attorneys standing out, taking these kinds of stands the last few years. What do you think drove Herdman the, to, the, to the passionate position that he stated? I think it's probably the perfect confluence of uh, events. We had a mass shooting in Dayton just a couple of weeks ago. Not long after that, there was a man arrested at Youngstown charged with posting something online that uh, advocated shooting federal agents on site um, and surrounded with the uh, surrounding those posts were a bunch of things talking about bombing Planned Parenthood and really just uh, white extremism. After that, a couple of weeks later, another man in Youngstown, it seems like it's all in Northeast Ohio right now, ended up getting charged with threatening a Jewish community center out there. Um, there was a, a plea out in Toledo for somebody who, for two people who admitted they wanted to shoot up a bar out there and commit an act of eco-terrorism. So it really was the perfect confluence. And White nationalism, you know, has not gone away in the news in the last couple of years. I think this was a basically a concerted effort on his part to try to stand out a little bit from the pack and say, hey, look, we're not going to stand for this. When you talk to Herdman about those cases that you just mentioned, he explained what goes into deciding how to handle them. When he was talking then, did you see that same kind of fire as he used later? I mean, he had a long speech where he talked about the right, you know, the difference of the right to an opinion and the right to take action. And it was really thought out. So in my interview with him, we did not necessarily get to the point where he was talking with passion about the, about it. But that thing you talked about, the First Amendment, really just free speech versus when that crosses that line, mm -hmm. um, that's been something we've talked about several times. It's happened in, in, in cases not just involving these kind of extremism from white young men, uh, and in one case in Toledo, a woman, but also in cases involving uh, what we would think of as regular terrorism. Um, that may be getting away from your question just a little bit, but it really did not get as passionate then. That said, they really hadn't they hadn't made yet another arrest for it. This was really kind of in the middle of just a, a flurry of action that his office was taking it for these kinds of cases. Yeah, you know, it's refreshing to see because it is he's not working in a justice department that's made that their hallmark, and for him to stand up, uh, it, you know, it's a leader in in Cleveland that you know we don't see a, a lot of that kind of leadership. So. And, and he ended up getting a lot of uh, attention from outside of the state because of that. I mean, there were news articles from across the country. CNN, ABC ended up picking this up and just really running his comments verbatim, saying, whoa, look at over here in Ohio. Yeah, that's yeah, kind of cool. In another era, this next one would have been a huge viral story, too. But it seemed like it almost went unnoticed. We had a mayor of a Cleveland suburb, a fairly wealthy Cleveland suburb, plead guilty to stealing money from a U.S. congressman. So tell me how that worked. Um, and we're talking about a man named Scott Coleman, the former mayor of Highland Heights over on the east side near the Geauga County border. 
Uh, he This has been something that's been going on for a couple of years. Dave Joyce's campaign told the FEC they were looking at irregularities several months ago. Um, and finally, after some plea negotiations and talking with the Geauga County prosecutor out there, he agreed to plead guilty to a fourth-degree felony, admitting to stealing $160,000 uh, from Dave Joyce's campaign's coffers. He's looking at a year and a half in prison. His hope is he's not going to get anywhere near that. But, you know, th- that's what's going on right now. This is kind of crazy. Um, Dave Joyce always comes across as the nice guy. Even a nice guy can't let his campaign account uh, get stolen. Um, and and the mayor had to pay this back, right? Like, And he, he had to pay it back plus what it cost to investigate this. So do we have any idea if he was just stashing this money away or anything like that? You know, I, I was trying to ask what he was doing it to his attorney, Ian Friedman, uh, right after the plea. Uh, he, he would have had to pay this back either way. What he ended up doing as part of this agreement was paying uh, the money back that he stole in addition to the money it actually cost the campaign and outside consultants to figure out what exactly was going on. There were a lot of there were a lot of un, um, unreported contributions to the oh. FEC. So I think in the end, it was about $340,000. Only 160 or so of that was really what he stole. The rest were to, you know, lawyers at Jones Day and other places to figure out what exactly was going on. a lot on. of money. Right. Well, and just as this story seems to be simmering down, you and your Cleveland.com colleagues had another story about another campaign account that looks like it's been the victim of theft at a much larger scale. We don't have a good number for that just yet. I believe the number that the FEC flagged for uh, Cincinnati area Republican Steve Shabbat, the congressman there since about 2011, um, they said north of $100,000 uh, is missing from that campaign, or at least there were some irregularities. I don't think they're getting I to the I point. I saw that number $1 million, no? We're not there yet. I don't think there has been a good number um, that anybody is comfortable with saying this is how much we're missing. Um but that's ramping up just as the other one is uh, closing down. Seems like Ohio, uh, Ohio Congress people have a problem on their hands. Although you know, in Joyce's case, he's using a mayor. I mean, you would think that a longtime mayor, right? From I believe it was about fifteen years. Yeah. Wow. And he so he resigned in February. So this obviously this was coming and everybody knew this was coming yeah that was an open secret the question was really just what the plea would say he's looking at 18 months and uh to your earlier question i mean i think uh, his attorney is going to try to give some reasons on exactly why uh he stole this money that goes beyond maybe just greed there were some worries because he managed some other accounts that there might be other theft right didn't he have some involvement with steve la account and maybe even la daughter now he was, yeah, he was the treasurer for both of them. Uh, La Tourette's uh, state uh, basically said they didn't want to pursue it. They didn't find any irregularities going back that long. Um, and Sarah La Tourette, who was in the U.S., uh, or excuse me, in the Ohio House, um, they didn't find any irregularities in that either. That said, though, their campaign, according to the Geauga County Prosecutor, said that, you know, he was a treasurer in name only and didn't have access to the accounts. Well, Eric, thanks for the conversation. My bet is we'll be talking soon again about Dave Yost. Think so. <laughs> Coming up, a conversation with columnist Leila Atassi about the increasing number of homeless families in Cleveland and how the city mission works to help them. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We're wrapping up the podcast like we did last week with columnist Layla Atassi. Layla, we're not talking about anything you wrote. How does that work? Well, this is your world, Chris. I just live in it. <laughs> right, right. Okay. 
<laughs> what we're talking about is the visit we had this week by the people from the city mission who are working feverishly to spread the word about homeless families in the region. The numbers keep going up and really we don't have a real shelter for them. So, yeah, the city mission told us that in the past decade, family homelessness has increased by about 35 percent. And one of the major causes of that is the lack of affordable housing um, here in Cleveland and really everywhere in the United States. And, um, you know, as well as wages that don't really keep pace with the cost of housing. And he said that at City Mission, they come into contact with a lot of people who make about 10 to $12 an hour, but really you need to be making like 15 or 16 to be able to afford rent in, in Cleveland. Um, meanwhile, you know, federal dollars are pretty much set aside to, you know, directed mainly to chronically homeless. And HUD has a very specific definition of that. Um, you have to be an individual without dependents, having some sort of disability, and either have 12 consecutive months of homelessness or several stints of homelessness in a given period. So needless to say, because of that funding gap, there are very few beds available in Cuyahoga County to address homeless families. Um, The county has lost 500 beds for families in the past decade, they said. Um, And currently, you know, I think he said that there are 200 beds total left in in the county and 166 of those are with the city mission. Yeah, this sounds like it was an almost unforeseen consequence of national policy to try. And and as and so as as everybody focused on dealing with what the nation defined as homelessness, the people that were dealing with the families dried up. Exactly. And, you know, as families come through the county's central intake process because of that lack of of beds, uh, they try their best to divert them to other places, basically tell them to go back to where you came from. Um, where did you sleep last night? And once those people are, are you know, out of sight, out of mind, they don't really count as homeless. And so, you know, the, the result is untold numbers of mothers and their children couch surfing, as they say, who are not considered homeless by HUD's definition, but also face terrible circumstances, really poor outcomes, on account of housing instability, especially the kids who suffer long-term effects of that trauma. Well, that is the saddest thing, the kids. And I heard that babies and toddlers have no cribs. They sleep on mats next to their moms. And that's horrible and could be really dangerous in an era of SIDS. Yes. That's Um, the temporary shelter, right? Yes. The the county, what Laura's referring to is the county shelter, um, which I think they created in the last couple of years in response to this emergency overflow and the conditions there that that city mission described is you know just abysmal um it's an old convent so it sounds like there are multiple rooms with mats uh about 46 mats on the floor in those rooms and then they have a space for an additional 40 or so in their gymnasium and there's only one shower three toilets no air conditioning and you know some of the blistering heat of summer and the issue with babies sleeping on the mats with their moms just kills me you mm-hmm. know like as laura said after all the effort that's going into Safe trying sleep. to prevent yeah. uh, infant mortality in this county it's a crisis a crisis level you know they say in a crib alone on, on their back. back yeah and how can they be you know it's just ludicrous that they don't have some basic cribs for infants well you guys haven't been around as long as i have but i've been here long enough to remember when there was a huge furor over over the men's shelter. We're going way back to the Mike White years. Uh, And the community got behind building and setting up 
the 21st Street shelter to help the homeless men. This would seem to be so much more critical, and yet you don't have any of that same kind of passion for coming up with a more permanent solution. So we have to create it, right? We've got to create that passion. (laughs) That's why they were here. (laughs) Um, So the city mission, do they hose... Uh, sorry, do they house homeless families? They do. They they run Laura's Home, um, okay. which provides emergency shelter to single women as well as women with children. But, you know, as we talked about before, the number of beds are not nearly enough to meet the need in Cuyahoga County. And they've been full to capacity for years. And they told us that uh, they told us this week that they typically field phone calls every day from about 50, 60 women oh looking for emergency shelter. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So what is the solution just to drive up this furor so we all you know, take some kind of action? The city mission is looking to expand their own facility to increase their number of beds eventually um, and to increase some room for programming and, and some wraparound services. But, but you know, also countywide, uh, we need to make this a higher priority and we need more beds. We need more humane conditions in the facility that the Uh, that the county provides, and we need a higher minimum wage, more affordable housing options. Um, And just, you know, we need to place a higher priority on permanent housing for families with children. It's, these are children, for heaven's sake. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's wrong with us that we would let babies sleep on mats in a gymnasium and then kick them loose in the morning? The dogs at the Cleveland Kennel have more stability in their lives than that. I mean, (laughs) we can do better, can't we? Good line. When you write the column, we'll look for that one. The city mission doesn't take any public money, and yet they're the ones that are driving this. That seems odd. It seems like this is really the responsibility of the public. Why don't they take any public money? Uh, the city mission told us that it helps them remain flexible with how they spend that money. There are really no strings attached when they're collecting it uh, privately and, and coming up with their own uses for it. And typically public funds for this purpose come with the requirement that they be spent on you know, housing first, which obviously is the critical need for this population. But the city mission believes just that the lack of a home is not really the cause of homelessness. There are so many underlying mm-hmm. causes that need to be addressed. So they offer wraparound services to try to get at that, those root causes um, with you know kind of an eye toward eventually setting the family up for long-term success. So mental health care and job readiness are some of the things they talked about. And obviously kids are the first thing you know, one of the, the most important issues here. And we at cleveland.com have done the first 2000 days where we talk mm-hmm. about how important the first five years are and how traumatic issues in kids' lives can really set them up for failure later. So are there any other like childhood um, kind of agencies that have gotten on board to make this part of their mission too? Or do you think that that could happen in the future? No, that's a question I don't, I'm not prepared to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Get, I don't all right, Layla, look, come back soon. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Laura, it's time to, to close this uh, podcast episode down. We started this thing with our new feature of the top five news stories of the week. Has uh, what you've heard in these discussions changed your mind at all about what those top five are? No, I think we were pretty spot on, though I've got to say I really love that House Bill 6 um, China, anti-China you know, tax thing. That's a great story. It's going to continue to be a great story. But I think Layla talking about the city mission and really uh, homeless families and where they stand in Cleveland, I think that is going to be an issue of outrage. And that is going to be a developing story that we are going to be talking about solutions for um, for a long time. And it's really important. So I think that would make our top five in the future. Yeah, that I mean, that's not in the news yet. But if we had had a story or something about this that this week, 
I think I agree with you. I would have moved it up there as, uh, as well. All right, that does it for this episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the team that brings it to you, the reporters and editors at cleveland.com. New episodes are published Thursday. Hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.